In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our theme to today is compassion, but we're going to start with a few words about peace. The two are not unrelated. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Peace is something we can take for granted. Maybe we should not. We're not just speaking today of that peace which the good order of our civil society provides, that inner and outer groundwork for human interaction when human interactions are governed by the rule of law, or that peace which when internalized grants to our inner lives the possibility of trusting in human interactions that they will be susceptible to working for the benefit of anyone else in society, no matter how highly placed or how lowly their status, that all rich and poor alike are bound in what Luther called a covenant of vocational holiness, the sense of calling which turns all our activities into opportunities for showing our love for our neighbor and doing for our neighbor what our neighbor cannot do for herself or himself, doing it as to the Lord, doing it with love. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He, the Lord for us, the Lord Jesus, is our peace embodied in the embrace of the cross, embodied in the Eucharist, as we take him into our hands and he takes us into himself bodily to make his habitation within us and among us. This mystery, which we celebrate every time we gather on Sunday mornings, for the most part, is one that is now being celebrated around the world in communities we cannot count and we join our prayers at this moment, not just with fellowships of living believers dispersed around the planet in space, but even in the communio sanctorum, those who have preceded us through time and time to come into that glory that awaits us all, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That's from the apostle, of course, the apostle Paul, whose texts I engage so rarely up here, not because I don't find them engaging, but because the depths are fathomless, and the way winds round and round, and even in the time I so generously give myself, I cannot seem to find my way in there and out of there, in the time we're allowed. His exquisite logic has a way of turning prose into poetry. And that prose, as St. Paul says, turned into poetry, has a way of turning space into time and time into space, and both can go on and on at rather too great a length. 
For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we look at the embrace of the Eucharist and what it is really all about, we are brought face to face with the wonder of the incarnation and the wonder of our redemption. Now, one of the texts, if you like, that I am often giving attention to these days is one that has been uh, wedded to uh, a piece of music. The text, as I referred to before, is that of uh, a drama called Parsifal, and the author of the text, Richard Wagner, also had a way of setting text to music. If you have an hour or five to give to taking it in, the first act of Parsifal is longer than virtually any Verdi opera in its entirety. You will be rewarded, especially if you make it through to the very end, the very final words that the chorus utters from up high in the dome of the sanctuary on stage, which probably means the fly gallery 150 feet above the stage floor. That choir sings from those heights, Höchsten heiles Wunder, Erlösung dem Erlöser, which means miracle of supreme salvation, our Redeemer redeemed. Our Redeemer redeemed. Now, these words hit me with a special force. There's nothing particularly provocative about the idea that our Redeemer needs redemption. But it's not something we keep in mind day after day. Again, as St. Paul says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The essence of incarnation, in other words, is kenosis, this emptying, that the Redeemer needed redemption before his redeeming work could be completed, and that in order for him to be redeemed, he had to take upon him the need for redemption as great as ours. It was not enough for God to see the suffering of humanity, if you like, to peer over the dividing wall of hostility that separated him from humanity. But this same God must condescend, which means literally descend, step over that wall, come down the other side, and join us in our suffering. Suffering, empathy, and the compassion that comes from this is, of course, the theme of Parsifal, and it's the theme of our text today as well. Compassion becoming the passion, the way of the cross, the way from our wayward and warring nature to the peace of God goes one way, not from passion, but from compassion. Empathy, yes, which means to feel your pain, but to compassion, which means having felt your pain, what I do now is to go about the business of trying to take your pain away. Your pain is to be mitigated, not augmented by mine. And the last thing I need to hear from some technician who's done some scan of me is a sob of grief and despair. Or to go in for some procedure to feel the surgeon say to me, I'm overcome with grief by your misery, and there's really nothing I can do today, but I'll do my best anyway. No, empathy is great, but it has to lead to something more. Now, I'm twisting language, 
But at times like this, I find allies in language in neuroscience. A little of that goes a long way, but I find it irresistible. Fully incarnational study. And for every thought and feeling, there is a place among the hundred billion neurons of our brain. Neuroscientists have found that we are naturally empathetic. We like to share the feelings of others, even at an early age. It comes naturally, even to fallen humanity. And toddlers will often stop what they're doing and take their first steps toward kindliness when they jump up to open a colored door in an experiment for their father who comes through the door with an armful of boxes and can't get it open. The toddler will grasp that and run to help them. Wonderful, but heaven help the one who is not their father who comes through the door of the lab and tries to do the same thing they will elicit no such response from the children. Children, in other words, are just as tribal as adults, and they naturally like those who are just like them, not unlike animals who have a way to taking very badly when other species wander into their territory, not always compassionate, in other words. Now, when we look into what's going on, we see that empathy arouses certain areas of the brain. When empathy is activated in the brain, when we begin to suffer as other people are suffering that we see, uh, this tends to leave us disturbed, restless, and exhausted. The pain of others can be a pain for others and a heavy load. Compassion, however, confronts the impulse to empathy with the possibility of active care, taking those feelings and turning them into something that will change the situation. I read a little bit from an article, Neuroscience, Kindness, and Compassion, by Richard Hill, and I quote, seeing someone else in pain or suffering can be very difficult. For many, we experience a sympathetic sense of the pain and suffering within ourselves, and it can almost seem healthier to harden the heart and avoid taking it in. It can seem healthier, and when you look at first responders or who, people who have served in the military, you often find that constant exposure to the suffering and death of others indeed hardens their heart and produces all kinds of uh, effects within their own psyche. Hardening of the heart also, may I point out, is something about which the Bible has a great deal to say. And of all conditions to get into, it is the most to be avoided. The trouble is that that hardening of heart, our author goes on, can lead to guilt or feeling dissociated or disconnected, and that is not very satisfying either. If you come out of all of this with no sense of empathy whatsoever, you are psychopathic, and we know what mischief psychopaths can get up to, especially given enough power, enough said. Olga, Olga Klemecki from the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig and her colleagues looked at the affects, the feelings, that is, of cultivating compassion when confronted with the distress of others, how to turn empathy into compassion. They found that the principal empathetic response activated the anterior cingulated cortex, the ACC, and the anterior insula. 
for those who can't visualize this, these are parts of the brain that are clustered right at the brain stem, right where your neck joins the bottom of your skull and your back of your head. Very ancient areas they are in the development of the brain. These areas underlie the empathetic experience of pain. They are activated during the personal experience of pain. They are activated during the imagined experience of pain. And they are activated during the empathetic experience of pain. It doesn't have to be your pain to make you feel pain. That's how we're wired. There might be some activity in the mirror neuron system. You better believe it, especially when there was action involved, although this was not mentioned in the study. Now, the author says when we go on to compassion training, which I'll explain, the neural activation was quite different. Let's where it happens, in different areas of the brain, it sort of spreads out right up to the frontal cortex. These areas are correlated to positive affect, not pain and anger and fear, positive affect, joy, love and affirmation. These form a system that reflects positive affect, showing that it's not only possible to maintain a positive brainscape, even in the face of the suffering of others. It is helpful for the brain of the observer in being able to better cope with the experience. And one would imagine be more able to be helpful and useful to those that are suffering. What constitutes this training then for these scientists at the Max Planck Institute in uh, Leipzig and in other parts of the world doing the same research. Well, it involves something called kindness meditation, which looks to us very much like meditation. And the patterns for this meditation practice they are getting from the church, believe it or not. They tested people for 45 minutes a day doing these meditative practices, which are prayer practices or reading scripture or doing the daily office. And they found that they developed neural pathways and associations which allowed them to deal with the negative affects of pain with something positive. One surprising finding, and then I'm done with this, was that negative affect was not actually reduced. We don't stop feeling pain. It's not some kind of opioid. But that this was perceptively altered by the increase in positive affect. It may be that in order to be compassionate, we still need to appreciate the suffering of others, they've said. So enough of that. The way to develop compassion, however, they're saying, because it doesn't come naturally, is through exercises. Practices of contemplation very much like those that we call centering prayer. The church knew a thing or two in the recesses of time of what fMRIs could show us in real time. Now, how do we do that? It goes to the issue of the dividing wall that we have to cast down, the wall that separates us from those suffering and that we naturally learn to put up just to spare ourselves the grief. Paul calls for that dividing wall to be cast down. And he goes on to say that that wall is to be cast down not just for those we like and those like us, for the in-group, but also for the out-group, scattered by tribal rivalries and cycles of revenge to be regathered to come together in God's oversight. 
This is very much about the business of bringing humanity together into one. Because if we harden our hearts to those who are not like us, then our compassion is wanting. The prophet Jeremiah says, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. You're not a shepherd. You not only have not been keeping the flock together, you've actually scattered them to the wolves. You've said, you are not my concern. Behold, I will attend to you. I'm going to take care of you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold. Now let's extend this a bit. Jeremiah is not saying that once the sheep have left their flock, which is their national identity or their ethnic identity or whatever kind of cultural identity they have, they are to stay scattered and then are to be regathered into one. He is saying they return back to the place from what they came. Then what does God do? Does he pick the most likely national identity? Say, you are my people. You've got the best chance of being God's people. All of you come into me, into my kingdom. No, he does not look at any nation and say, you have the scent of godliness about you. God builds his kingdom by gathering the citizens of the kingdom from out of every tribe and nation. He gathers them one by one from out of every tribe and nation. No political construction enjoys the special favor of God. The notion, by the way, which has already cost this world so dearly. The only thing that will bring us to that place is prayer together. And to look over the dividing wall that separates us and see that we are all in this mess together, saint and sinner alike. For he himself is our peace and has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, broken on the cross. We go to our place of prayer and realize that even saint and sinner are being drawn together. The place from which we begin again and again to build the, con the kingdom. At the cross, we can build nothing on the basis of our own anger, even our righteous indignation in the face of the suffering of others. We pray then for one thing as we look at the suffering of the world. Not vengeance, not even justice, but for mercy. Mercy first and last on us for our complicity in all of this. And then, and only then, comes compassion, that peace which God gives. And then comes action, God's action, which will not fail. We are called to act not out of our own immediate sense of what's gone wrong and fix it full of passion. But when that passion is set aside and we have peace to let God guide us to where action is needed. So what do we use finally to bring us to that place of peace? What kind of prayer would help us when we're on the run and in the middle of a crisis and my anger and rage rises frequently, I hesitate to confess, 
I do not have time or interest or inclination to compose some lovely poetic prayer or to go thumbing through the book of our colleagues and try to find one. I need one that's at hand right away. The one that has served the church so well is one that is called the Jesus Prayer, and I'll leave you with that. It seems so right for this kind of emergency use, and you say it not once, but again and again and again. You let its constant repetition shut your mind down. That's the whole point of the exercise. Shut your mind down. A verse from scripture will not work. Nothing like that will work. You need a simple prayer. In its most expansive form, the Jesus prayer goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It can be short, shortened most drastically to two words in Greek, Kurie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Try saying it sotto voce over and over, Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Lord, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We make it wider, make it shorter, but say it over and over again until the passions within yourself are numbed and the sweetness of God begins to tamper the flames of the ardor of your soul with the empathy of his peace, the deep peace that only God can give, with a sense of gratitude of what he has given, and that greatest gift being the gift of himself given on the cross, the Redeemer redeemed for our redemption. Amen.